This is a quote by James Madison, one of the writers of the Constitution. It's about government. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. That's a very thoughtful statement. And in my mind, it's absolutely correct. Men, women no one. <laughs> are not angels. So we need some governmental control. What that looks like, that's where we're going today because we're changing the view of what we did in government. Today we're going to discuss the Constitutional Convention that took place in May of 1787 to create the Constitution that we somehow still have today. Like James Madison said, we're no angels. We need government. And we also need to know how the government works. I'm John Amato. I'm Jazzy Marine, and welcome to episode two of Civic Sense. Chapter one, the lead up to the Constitutional Convention. The two questions that we will discuss, answer in today's class, what was the debate among delegates over the kind of national government that was needed? And what compromises were made as the government was created? And Mr. Amato, can you remind me what a delegate is? A delegate served as a representative from the state who was at the convention to write the Constitution. As we discussed on last week's episode, the Constitution we have now was not the first or original American system. The first government, which was set up by the Continental Congress after we broke away from the British, was called the Articles of Confederation. But this system didn't last long, less than a decade, actually. Jazzy, tell me why the Articles didn't work. Okay, I promise I was paying attention last week. The government consisted of one House legislature, a unicameral body of Congress, and each state had a single vote, so they all had the same amount of power. There was no president or judicial court system, and basically Congress was super limited in what it could do. In the end, the Articles served as more of an honor system instead of a framework of laws. So, Mr. Amato, where do we go from here? In 1787, the Congress approved a convention for the sole express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. Now, this was a Congress that was operating under the Articles of Confederation, but still they understood that things had to be changed. Yeah, it had to change because by May of 1787, the new Confederation of States faced a crisis. The economy was failing, not able to pay its bills and debts from the Revolutionary War. The government wasn't able to deal with the challenges of leading a country. So what change are we looking for? Even before the convention, most of the delegates had agreed that a national government was needed and not simply an alliance or a confederation of states. Got it. In response to this crisis, leaders like Washington, Madison, Benjamin Franklin traveled to Philadelphia. The Constitutional Convention was held at the Pennsylvania State House, where the Declaration of Independence had been signed. Oh, wow. Pretty special place. So set the scene for me. What were the ground rules for the convention that summer? Well, the delegates at the convention tried to keep their discussions quiet from the general public. Sometimes negotiations that are open to the public get weighed down 
by everybody's great, fantastic, brilliant opinion. We all have the best opinions. <laughs> we, we do, and, and everybody's going to say so. <laughs> but the reality was they didn't want any outside pressure to sway or influence their decision-making. This was also to avoid delegates from making decisions in the interest of just their people back home and not for the good of all the states. And this foreshadows conflicting priorities and wants between members from different states, which we'll get to later in class when we talk about different plans put forward at the convention. Chapter two, the Virginia plan that was put forward at the Constitutional Convention. Everybody starts coming up with their new plan for how America was going to be run. The Virginia plan was James Madison's bold plan to create a central government. Not spread out all over the states, <laughs> but a central government. Okay, so tell me what is in this new, bold Virginia plan and why is it so important? Very much different from the article single-body legislature, the Virginia plan created a two-chamber legislature. And what it's been called as well is a bicameral. Camera meaning house, by meaning two. Got it. The lower house would be chosen by the people, and I bet you want the definition of the people. Yeah, who are the yeah. people? <laughs> the peoples were white men who owned land. So definitely not millennials. Not millennials today. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> and the upper house chosen by the lower house. That's an interesting idea. So the lower house gets chosen. They're all white men landowners and then they get to choose who's going to be in the upper house called the senate so that's what we have today exactly yeah that, certainly the house and the senate it also created an executive the president uh-huh and a judiciary if you think about what we have today this madison plan this virginia plan really is the precursor yeah the precursor for our three branches of government <laughs> So it sounds like the Constitutional Convention came up with the three branches of government right away. Everyone said, okay, let's do it. Let's go home. If it only were that easy, it would be great. <laughs> but not, not so fast. Nothing in politics works that quickly. <laughs> You're right. Okay, so why didn't the delegates implement the Virginia plan? What was the matter with it? Delegates from the larger states were very much into the Virginia plan, whereas reps from the smaller states complained larger states would have more say, and they were correct, <laughs> because the number of representatives per state would be determined by population size. Some also feared the strong centralized government would snuff states' rights. Many delegates from the smaller states like Delaware and New Jersey thought this plan was also too radical. Okay, so the bigger states with larger populations, like Virginia, say we're in on this plan of a strong central government, three branches, two houses of Congress, let's go. But members from some of the smaller states weren't that into it, so they decided to put forth their own plan. That is correct. Chapter 3. The New Jersey plan proposed at the Constitutional Convention and why it matters today. So one of the major questions the framers faced at the Constitutional Convention is how many representatives will each state have in the legislature? The amount proposed in the Virginia plan didn't work for the smaller states. 
So New Jersey proposed its own plan. The New Jersey plan was in response to people thinking that the Virginia plan was too radical. What was the New Jersey plan? They didn't want to rock the boat so much, so instead proposed the modified Articles of Confederation. It was easier that way, simpler. Single-body legislature with equal representation, not the two-body legislature provided by the Virginia plan, and again, what we have today. Mm -hmm. A weak two-person executive branch and a single judicial body. It's interesting how a two-person executive plan would work. Yeah, would that be like a vice president and a president or Uh, co-presidents? How does that work? It was more the latter than the former. I mean, obviously we have the president and the vice president, and that makes sense just in terms of succession. Mm -hmm. But who was in charge? Who had to make the ultimate decision? That was a question that had to be dealt with. Chapter 4, The Other Concessions Made in Creating the Constitution, Starting with the Electoral College. So this new plan is thrown into the mix a month into the convention, the delegates weren't in agreement, and everything seemed to be going nowhere. What else was decided by the framers during these debates? Well, the delegates also came up with the Electoral College idea. The Electoral College came out that long ago, and it's still what we have today? Yes, it may (laughs) have had its place. And some historians will argue at one point it did. Wow, I was not prepared to start this conversation so soon, but what is the Electoral College? This came out of a disagreement over who shall be allowed to select the executive. The delegates decided that all eligible citizens, again, white men with property, would elect members of the House. State legislatures would select senators. The Electoral College would select the president and each state legislator would determine how the state's electors were chosen. Well, my question is, why the Electoral College at all? Why can't the voters just decide who the executive will be? Because the Founding Fathers had this fear that the general public would make the wrong decision and that the electors would ride in on their horses to save the day. It's so funny to me. There's one camp that's so afraid of a strong executive that they barely want one and say, let's split the job up in two to ensure it's staying weak. Then there's another camp that recognizes that we need a leader, but actually, do we really trust the people to elect who we think should be the executive? Exactly. That's craziness. (laughs) It was then, even in the founding period of time, it's the same today. We don't live in a pure democracy. We live in a republic. And a republic is a government in which its citizens elect representatives to make its laws. The founding fathers say we can't have a full-scale democracy because it will be mayhem. (laughs) And I want to share with the rest of class that this is just an introduction to the Electoral College as it was intended when the United States was founded. Later this semester, when we dive into elections today, we'll focus on the Electoral College and its impact now. Chapter 5, The Three-Fifths Compromise A part of our history we haven't talked so much about yet is slavery. One of the big topics that really threatened to derail the convention was how should enslaved people be represented. Southern states wanted to count the enslaved as part of their total state population, 
which would give them more power in Congress, but in turn also meant those states would pay higher taxes. Most northern states opposed slavery, but also wanted more tax revenue. Can you explain this to me? Again, going back to what we've talked about in terms of how a government operates and how it pays for what it's doing, you wind up with a situation where you have to raise money. And to raise money, well, we do it by taxes. Do the large states pay more in taxes? Which makes sense. They have more people, they can pay more, they can pay more money. Mm -hmm. When you think about slavery, how are they going to be considered as far as population? If you included all the slaves, they'd have a huge population. They'd also have to pay a larger ticket in terms of taxation. No, we don't we, we don't want to do that. And that's because slaves were treated as property at the time. But the southern states suddenly wanted to count them as part of the state population. You had one section of the country, primarily the north, that most of its population was European immigrant. You had the south, and specifically Virginia, that the greater number of its people were African-American slaves. Are they going to have the right to vote? They didn't have any rights at all. Should they be counted for terms of population? Well, of course, the South said yes. And of course, the North said no. And the back and forth was the North said, okay, if you're going to have this population counted, then you have to pay more in taxes because we want our taxes based upon that population as well. Okay, so what kind of decision did the delegates come to? Well, the slave states didn't want to pay a lot of money. The northern states didn't want to be out-represented by these states with large populations that only part of it counted. So the founding fathers came up with this compromise. It's called the Three-Fifths Compromise. Every slave held in the South would count as three-fifths of a person for both representation and taxation. Wow. Now, if you can go back to your math class, that's a fraction. That's not a full person. But what it did was it allowed this Continental Congress to move ahead, to move on. Later this semester, we'll spend more time talking about how slavery and other forms of institutional racism have impacted our government. We'll also provide resources to learn more about the Three-Fifths Compromise in our show notes. Chapter 6, The Great Compromise. Okay, so in agreeing to the Electoral College and the Three-Fifths Compromise, the delegates from the smaller states felt heard and were okay ditching the New Jersey plan. So what happens at the convention next? The delegates kept the convention alive. It could have blown up in a nanosecond. They came to an agreement on what they call the Great Compromise. The Connecticut Compromise, or the Great Compromise, was... A bit of genius in that it allowed a bicameral legislature to exist, representatives and senators. It had an executive in it, which became known as the president. And we wound up with a justice system, which wound up being called the Supreme Court. And we'll get to this more later in the semester as well, but the Supreme Court would ultimately have the authority to interpret laws and settle conflicts between states. If you look at the Constitution, the legislature has the most writing, Article 1. Article 2 in the Constitution is the executive, the second most writing. 
the third Article 3, which is a small portion, that's the justice system. <laughs> so maybe they could have written a little more about Article 3. We talked about this before. The idea of framers of the Constitution, these legislators, these politicians, these wise men framed the document that we call today the Constitution. They put it together. Was it all correct? <laughs> There's definitely room for improvement. Over the years, though, changes have been made, but the framers are still recognized for creating the government we have today. So on September 17, 1787, a final proposal to create the Constitution was signed. Congress then sent it to the states for approval, and enough states signed on by the following year, 1788, for the new government to take effect. A loose union of independent states had become the United States of America. Yay! Chapter 7, What We Learned Today. So, what we walked away from the Constitutional Convention was a system with a stronger centralized government. Axing the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution establishes the three branches of government we have now, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. Smaller states feared having too strong of a central government, so the framers ensured states' rights by having the two houses of Congress and the Electoral College. So the Constitution establishes our form of government, a republic, a system where people elect their representatives. We know a lot of information was thrown your way throughout today's class, but we unfortunately couldn't even fit everything from the Constitutional Convention in. That's why, if you want to learn more details, we'll provide resources in our show notes. In the meantime, Mr. Amato, where do we go with our new Constitution from here? Next week, our civics class is going to focus a little less on the history and start focusing more on how the government is run. History gives us context, but actually understanding how the government operates is really what we want to talk about in Civic Sense. We're going to do this by diving into the Constitution, the living, breathing document that establishes our form of government, a republic. And following our conversation about how the framers cared so much about Congress, next week's class will start with Article One of the Constitution, the plan for how Congress should work. And it is the longest of all the articles. So you can see how much time and effort the delegates put into the construction of Article 1. Well, that wraps up today's episode of Civic Sense. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Stay out of trouble. Civic Sense is a production with HW Media. Production support comes from Jen Bladen, Zoe Gore, Nathan Wang, and Alan Osinoff. Podcast art is by Maya Ragazzo, and our theme music is by Alex Bloom and Kevin Farzad. It is hosted and produced by John Amato and Jazzy Marine.